Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the last few verses in this chapter, and I want to tell you that if you, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. We've provided some at the center of each aisle, up under the chairs at the very center, and whoever's sitting there can pass one down to you if you don't own a copy. We'd love for you to take it with you, and for that to be our gift to you uh, this morning. We're going we're gonna to spend the next bit of our time together this morning walk, walking through a few verses from the end of Acts chapter 2. What we've been doing in Acts is looking at the beginnings of the church. This is the first years, first days even, of the life of Christian people in community together. We've been watching as the Spirit that had been promised by the prophets actually enters into the world and into the experience of God's people and watching the results of that play out in the stories we've considered so far. What we've looked at so far feels a whole lot like an epic movie. You know, like, one of the, like, like a movie that, that, that is describing big and once in the history of the world kind of events that, that where, where the stakes are huge and where, and, and where so much rides on what goes down. I think that that's a good way to think of the, uh, the, the story we consider of Jesus' ascension at the very beginning of our time together. And one time only in the history of the world does the crucified and risen Savior rise to the throne of heaven to take his seat until all his enemies are crushed. That only happens once, and we saw it in action. It only happens once that the Spirit, who's been promised, God himself coming down to his people so they could know him in a new way. That only happens once, and we saw that happen just a couple weeks ago. There's only one time that the... That, that, that the apostles, given the job of, by, by Jesus of, of telling everyone who he is, rise to speak first with the power of the Spirit and announce that gospel to the, word, to the world. We, we looked at that last week. Epic movies are great. Epic novels are great. We like that style, that genre. But there's, there's room for other kinds of stories too. Sometimes what we need is not so much these big cataclysmic once-in-a-lifetime events. Sometimes what we need are the more nuanced and careful, zoomed-in, daily look at what's going on. Sometimes those books and those movies draw us in in a, new, in a different kind of way, give us insight into ourselves, into our own lives, in a different sort of way. And one of my favorite things about Acts is that you get both kinds of material in this one book. Sometimes you get the big epic sweep that we've been considering for the past few weeks, and sometimes you get what we're going to look at today. What you get are a handful of verses that summarize the daily life of these very normal people, doing the kinds of daily normal things that Christians are called to do from then until now, the kinds of things we'll be doing together, Lord willing, until Jesus returns again. This morning, the passage we're going to look at shows us what it looks like for the Spirit to work itself out through the gospel in the lives of real people. What kind of community does the Spirit create through the gospel? I want you to think about the verses we're going to look at this morning as a kind of painting hanging on the wall of of an art museum. And I want you to think about me as a kind of docent at the museum whose job it is not to sort of work you through point one, point two, point three structure of this passage. It doesn't really work like that. But But to point you to the parts of the painting that you need to see if you want to recognize the brilliance of it and the relevance of it to the life we're trying to live together now in our own congregation. I want to point you to what I think you should notice about this painting, but at every point I'm going to do it not just for the historical curiosity of it, as interesting as this is, 
But because we trust, friends, we trust that the same spirit that created this community in this chapter right here works in us today. The same spirit is creating a kind of community among us today. We want to learn to recognize his work so we can give thanks for it and we want to learn to embrace it and not resist it because it's so good for us and for the community God has given us. So what we're going to be looking for as I point you to these key features this morning, what we're going to be trying to describe is what kind of community we will be here in our congregation if the Spirit is at work amongst us bringing the gospel home to our hearts. The gospel has just gone out. That's where this passage picks up. Peter has preached the sermon that clarifies who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. What did the gospel leave in its wake? That's what we're looking at this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the last few verses of Acts chapter 2 and then, and then we're going to walk through them together. This is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. You can be seated. What kind of community will we be? as the Spirit presses the gospel into our hearts. I want to just point you to three characteristics we can get from this community in Acts that will show up in our community life together by the power of the Spirit. Here's the first one. We'll be a community that's dependent on God. We'll be dependent on God. Maybe you notice uh, in verse 42, I think one of the helpful things to kind of get your bearings in this passage is to notice the different things this community was devoted to. They devoted themselves to, and then there's four examples, four basic practices. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. We're going to talk about each one of those. But notice about this list that the first one, the apostles' teaching, and prayers, the last one, both focus their attention on God. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and they were devoted to prayer. And in devoting themselves to these things, in listening to God's voice and in speaking back to Him, what they're doing is right at the center of their life, they're orienting themselves toward God. So what I want to do is just just think for a minute about each of these practices, their devotion to the apostles' teaching, their devotion to prayer, and say something about how they influence a local church like ours. Why these things, this dependence on God that they express are important for the kind of community that that we want and that we trust God is building amongst us. Let me me just make sure you understand what he means by the apostles' teaching and by prayer. So the apostles' teaching, that's the first thing we're told that they're devoted to. What he's saying when he says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching is it's basically that they were devoting themselves to hearing the word of God. You know, at this point in the life of the church, they didn't have the New Testament that we have. 
It hadn't been written down yet. So in the meantime, there were certain people that God had authorized to speak about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We call those guys apostles. They were men who, who knew Jesus, who walked with him, who listened to him teaching, who saw him live and do amazing things, who saw him die and then saw him rise again. They were in a unique spot to be able to tell others who he is and what, and what he said and, and what he did and why it matters so much. So when you hear apostles teaching, don't think just what I'm doing to you right now. It's not just any teaching. It's a very specific teaching from a very specific source that had been given a very specific authority by God to speak for him. So what they were devoting themselves to is what we devote ourselves to when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the Bible. And it's probably what they were doing, in verse 45 mentions that every, or rather verse 46 mentions that every day they were attending the temple together. That's probably what they were doing there. Most think that they, they went to the temple because they had a lot of big meeting space. They didn't have their own congregations. So they would go there where they could hear from the apostles in a, in a huge group. There was enough room for them to, to, to gather around someone and to listen. So, so they're, they're devoted to this teaching every day, it seems like. They're getting it wherever they can, whenever they can. Why? These first Christians can't get enough of what they've just heard from Peter. They want more and more and more, almost like an addiction. Because what they've just heard is the difference between life and death. And here's what they just heard Peter say. They just heard Peter say that, that God came to us in the person of Jesus, a human just like us. And that that showed up in signs and wonders that he did that no one else has ever done. Peter's just said that this same person, this God who became man, died a death that he meant to die. It was all on purpose. He was crucified according to a plan so that he could forgive sinners who deserved to die for their sins. They heard Peter say that this God who became a man, who died on purpose, didn't stay dead. Death couldn't hold him. He was raised again so that he could give that kind of life to us even though we die. And Peter's just told them that this same God who lived and died and rose again now sits on the throne of heaven where he is subduing every enemy that any one of us has ever had or ever will have. Now they've heard him say this and they've heard him apply it to them. Now imagine hearing when you know your powerlessness, maybe even feeling isolated with burdens you carry, that God became a man in power. Imagine if you're ashamed and feeling the weight of guilt, hearing that he came to die as a sacrifice to set us free forever. And imagine if you're grieving the death of people you love or fearing the death that you know you'll die and you hear that death couldn't hold him, he rose and so will everybody else who trusts in him. Imagine if you're feeling vulnerable to threats you can't see and to those that you can see, to circumstances that... that you're stuck in and to a future you can't really see into. Imagine you're feeling your own insecurity and vulnerability and you're told of a risen Christ who sits on the throne of heaven where he shares his help, where he subdues your enemies and his until they're all crushed under his feet. Imagine that's the message you're hearing. And it's not hard to imagine why they wanted more. Tell us more. Tell us more. Tell us more. I mean, imagine you're trapped in a cave. You're spelunking one day and the, the thing caves in and there's stones, big boulders blocking your exit and you're, you're there, trapped for 
three days with no food and no water and no sign of anyone coming to hear, coming to help you. Maybe nobody even knows. You don't know. But then you hear you know, the, the clanking sound of metal on rock. Maybe eventually you see a small shaft of light break through that wall of boulders. Maybe then you begin to hear people calling out to you. Are you in there? Are you okay? We're coming. And if that's your situation, you hear those sounds... You're not likely to pop in your AirPods for whatever battery juice you've got left and stream the next episode. You're probably, you're probably craning your neck at that hole. You're waiting for every sound you can get that there's life on the other side of that wall. That what you experience now is not all there is. Somebody's come. You're going to want to hear that over and over and over. In fact, you're going to be really stressed out if it stops. And that's the way the, these early Christians treat this teaching from the apostles. They want more, more, more. Don't, don't make it stop. Hey, tell me more. There's life in these words. It's a message you crave and can't get enough of. And friends, that's our position now, just as much as it was theirs. This is why we do our best to keep God's word central to every gathering of our church. Already this morning, you've heard two passages, three passages now, read publicly to you it's why we sing from it did you notice if you're familiar with the bible you probably have noticed that many of these songs we sung even this morning are straight out of the bible one of them was just an adaptation of a specific psalm the bible is all over our gatherings together i mean that's by design that's a that's an application of this passage we're trying to be faithful to this model that's why i'm preaching to you right now from a passage of the bible not from something i read this week that i thought was interesting that might entertain you I've got nothing, friends. I'm not the one who's come to save you. We need a word that comes from him, or else we're hopeless and lost. And because we believe he has spoken to us, uh, we put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and we just keep his word everywhere, all around, every part of what we're doing together. And what we want is not just for you to receive that word here in the context of these gatherings for the hour and a half or so that we're in here, but to take the word that I'm preaching to you even now and to, and to treat your life together as a kind of echo chamber for that word where it just bounces off and never escapes, where you're just taking it into your conversations at lunch today or into your small groups this week or into your, your, your gatherings with other friends randomly throughout the week that you may have, where this word is setting the agenda for your relationships with one another. Because there's no hope to be found anywhere else. That's why they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's why we're trying to do the same thing here. But they didn't just listen. You notice at the end of the list of these practices is prayer. They're just as devoted to praying to God. They crave God's word. They crave these promises. They, they want to hear more about what he said he'll do. But that goes hand in hand with prayer. Because if everything depends on his power and his grace, you're not just going to listen for what he said that he's done and not just listen for what he said he will do. You're going to pray to him for his help. It's one of the clearest things that, you'll, that we'll see as we keep working through this story in Acts is just how often they go here, how often we see them just in the story, in the details that we're told about. We see, him, we see them praying to God for help. We've already seen it a couple of times. I mean, right after Jesus said that you should go back to Jerusalem, don't go anywhere else, just wait there until you get what my Father has promised you, the Spirit's coming, just hang tight. The first thing we see them do is leave where they had seen Jesus rise up into heaven and go right back to their room and pray, praying for what he just said he would give them. 
A little bit later after that, they know they need to replace Judas. They need a new apostle. What do they do? Well, they use their reasoning. They, they don't just shut their mind off, but they, they, they turn to God and ask him to guide them. A little bit later in this passage, we see them praising God because he's given them everything that they need. A little bit later on in Acts, we're going to see them uh, threatened by the government. Don't talk about Jesus anymore, they're told, or else. And they pray that they'll have the boldness to continue preaching about Jesus and that they'll be effective in what they say. Then one of them does get thrown into prison. And what do they do there? They pray that God will set them free. They're praying to God about whatever they're experiencing because they know that they don't have what they need and he does. See, here's, here's, the, here's the main thing that I want you to notice about this, about this overall point. Their life together, for all the beauty of their relationships back and forth to one another that we're about to consider, their, their life together begins with an orientation to God. They're listening to him. They're talking to him. And in that craving for his word and in that response to him from everything they experience, what we're seeing is a fundamental underlying dependence on him as their only hope in life and in death. A church that's built by the gospel is a church that knows better than to trust careful planning or expert marketing or statistical analysis or relevant aesthetics or any other lever that we might pull based on our study or our money or our expertise or our creativity. A church that's built by the gospel knows better than to trust any of that because every goal that we have is a spiritual goal that requires on a spiritual power far beyond our own the kind of spiritual power that just poured out on these guys, on Pentecost. And what did they do to tap into that power? How did they convince God to give it to them? They didn't. All they did was pray. And this is why we pray so much. I know, I mean, our, our services are pretty short, but they're full of prayers. Have you noticed that? We pray the same prayers every single week. We praise God for who he is based on what he's told us and how he's related to us. We confess to God the sins that we, that we know we must confess and that we confess knowing he is willing to cleanse us. We give thanks to God for the way that he's loved us in Christ. We bring our requests to God because he tells us he wants us to. We, after every sermon, pray to God to help us to see and connect with and, and to love the word that we've just considered together. And we want to take prayers like the ones we're praying in here into our life together, not just in our private devotion, but into our friendships and into our small groups. And at every level of our church life, we go to God because everything that matters to us depends on him. If we're going to be a church community where the spirit has pressed the gospel into our hearts, if we want to be a community that tells the truth about the power of the spirit when he does that, then, then one of the first things we hope people will notice about us one of the things we pray will always be more and more true of us is that we'll be dependent on God. It starts with him. But it doesn't end there. This dependence on God leads to another feature in this community. It's beautiful. It's radical. And it's a precious testimony to the power of the Spirit to change people. The second thing that will be true of us is that we'll belong to one another. We won't just be dependent on God. We will belong to one another. I think this is the most striking feature of the, of the passage we're considering this morning. It's where I'm going to spend more time than on the first or the third points this morning uh, because I think it deserves it and because I think it's a unique opportunity to talk about the quality of life that these early Christians were living. 
I think it gives us a beautiful picture to pray towards and challenges us in some ways that are unique in our own culture and our time and place. Their dependence on God transforms the way that they live together. And the thing that, that you see, even just in a few verses here, is that these are people whose lives are not their own anymore. They don't consider their lives to be their own anymore. They belong completely to one another. So once again, let me, let me draw your attention to a couple of features here and then, and then think together for a while about, about our response to this in our community. In, the, in that summary verse, verse 42, it mentions not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, but also to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Fellowship here doesn't mean food like it does typically for us. That's what breaking of bread means. Fellowship here is a little more broad. It means sharing. That's what the word means, to share in. And, and here, if, if we take the rest of these verses as a kind of unpacking of their fellowship together, it means sharing everything. What we see are believers who've put themselves completely at the disposal of their community where whatever they have is open to and available to the needs of their friends. Let me, just, let me just point you to a couple examples here. For example, their possessions belong to one another. We're told they had all things in common. That's verse 44. Think, think of them as, as sharing everything. Whatever they have is, is available to their friends around them. It's, it's not that they didn't have things that were still like, technically in the eyes of the law of theirs. I mean, a little later in the passage... We're told they eat in one another's homes. So they still have homes that are their homes, but it's the point, the, the point is that they didn't treat it like it was theirs. They treated it like it was accessible to everyone, like it just as much yours as it is mine. They're selling their things, their possessions. They put them on the market. I don't know, I don't know how that happened. It's like a, like a first century Craigslist sort of thing or what, but, but, they're, but they're selling what they have. They're cashing it in. And then the proceeds are just being distributed. Who, who, who needs something? Okay, I think I, I don't need that lamp anymore. Let me sell that. And, then, and you take the cash and, and get what you need with it. I mean, who knows what this was actually looking like in practice? We can't read too much into this. It's just, it's just a really simple description. But the point is that they, their stuff wasn't theirs. They treated it like it was everybody's. And not just their stuff, not just their possessions. Notice that their, their time belongs to one another too. Verse 46 says that day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Day by day. Day by day. It's an ongoing, basic, normal part of their daily life. They're attending the temple together. Remember what I said a minute ago. Probably what this means is that they were gathering at the temple because that's where they could all fit and that's where they would hear the apostles' teaching. They didn't have church buildings. They didn't have homes that could fit everybody. And sometimes they wanted all to be together. And so they would go to the temple to do that. So the, the, the thing to notice here is that it's, it's a daily thing for them. Their time belonged to one another. If our lives are made up of the minutes in the day and how we choose to spend them, these, these believers devoted their lives to the life of their church. And notice that not only... The, their possessions belong to one another and to their time belong to one another. Their homes, their tables, their, their food, these things belong to one another too. Day by day, attending the temple together, they were also breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. 
Eating together matters, friends. There's something about it. It's not just about making sure everybody has enough to eat. It's not less than that. I mean, you get the sense they were sharing with the hungry from the food that they had to offer, but it isn't just about making sure everybody's got something to eat. There's a reason that eating together made the cut alongside teaching and prayer and fellowship. That's a tough list to break into. If you turn think about the basic practices of a local church, but breaking bread together made the list, and it belongs there because it matters. It packs a punch. Remember, uh, some of you who were here in the fall when we were working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. One of the really powerful moments in that letter is when Paul confronts Peter, who had who had been willing to share a table with Gentiles until some Jewish friends showed up who wouldn't be willing to do that, and Peter backs away from the table. And Paul calls him out on it because it wasn't just about the meal. It's about what that meal communicates. There's a grace and a love and acceptance that comes with sharing food with people. In fact, when you bring somebody to your table, what you're doing is welcoming them into your life. It's not about the food, and it's certainly not about the entertainment. It's about grace and love. That's, that's hospitality. I hope this portrait is clear enough. I mean, I'm just sketching based on a sketch here, but hopefully the portrait itself is clear enough. This is a community where their lives are just completely at the disposal of one another. And I wonder, friends, when you look at this picture, when you look at how they're loving one another here, what do you see? Do you see bondage? Or do you see freedom? It is a sort of bondage. They have willingly chosen to limit their options. To say yes to one another, they had to say no to other things. To make their money available to their friends, that meant their money couldn't go to other things they might have liked to have had in their home. To make their time available to their friends, to go to the temple, to hear the word, to reflect on it together, meant that they couldn't, you know, catch a movie that weekend maybe. To say yes to one another, they had to say no to other things. It is a kind of bondage. These are people who are way past the point of church hopping. They're done keeping their options open. Because what's theirs, they don't really see as theirs. They've chosen to make it the possession of their friends. They're bound on purpose. There is a kind of bondage here. But my goodness, these people are free. Can you imagine the freedom that these people live with? I have a hard time imagining it. I'll be awesome. I'll be honest. I, I, I have a real hard time imagining this freedom. These people, they know that they belong to God. They know who gives them what they need. They know who they can depend on for their present and for their future. And because they belong to God, they're free to belong to one another, to open their lives and say, here, it's yours. Whatever you need, take it. I think what we're meant to see in this passage is just a glimpse of the freedom of the new creation, of the kingdom that Jesus has promised to build, the kingdom that he told them they would have to wait for for a while, but that begins to show up right here in their life together. This is a kingdom in which there is no lack or fear of lack because God provides for everything. This is a kingdom 
in which you know that he provides freely from the same generosity that sent Jesus to the cross and forgiveness to the guilty and the spirit to all flesh. This is the freedom that comes when you know God just gives and gives and gives. That's just who he is. He just keeps giving. So why would you hold on to what you have as if you need to protect it? And if your treasure is safe beyond the reach of loss or lack, you don't have to cling to what you have. You can open your hands with everything else and live fearless and free and full of joy. This is what the Spirit creates in people when he brings the gospel to the heart. This is the kind of life together where he shows up. So what do we do with it? What do we do with this picture? I mean, especially at this point where he's describing this radical life together that they're living. I think it's beauty the beauty of this picture is it's hard to deny. I imagine all of us resonate with it, at least at some level. But does your life look like this? Mine doesn't, at least not like I want it to. So I think for us to learn from this passage in the way that we need to learn from it, we're going to have to resist the urge to turn this passage into a whip that we beat ourselves with. I think even more, we're going to have to resist the urge to turn this passage into a whip we beat other people with. I think a better way to respond to this passage is to celebrate where we see God doing this work among us and then to evaluate where and how we can put our lives more fully at the disposal of our friends in our church. So I want to do that for a few more minutes, if you all bear with me. I want to celebrate where we see God doing this work among us. And then I want to encourage you and give you some tips for how to evaluate where you can put your life more fully at the disposal of your friends. I think it isn't honoring to God if we don't stop right here first and celebrate what he has done in our church. One of the greatest joys I've had in the nine years I've been serving our church has been watching you guys spend yourselves for one another. How many meals have been prepared and delivered to people who needed them? Not because anybody asked you to, just because you wanted to. How many new babies? How many health crises? How many moves? How many run-of-the-mill rough days have been weathered because a friend showed up with a casserole or a pot of soup? You guys are amazing with how you provide food to one another. How many of you open your homes for small groups week after week after week after week after week? And how many others of you bring food to those groups after hard days of work? You keep on showing up. How many of you have served children and their parents? Many of you not having children of your own but serving month after month in childcare so that we can get the spiritual nourishment we need in this room. And not just on a childcare rotation. How many of you have I seen see the need in one of your friends for a little break, for a little breather, and go take care of their children, engage their children well so that they can get it? How many of you have given money to support the needs of other members? Our life together is not perfect, friends, but it is beautiful. And God is doing it. And we should celebrate it and we should honor him. And I think that honest celebration of the ways in which he's bringing this picture to bear on our life together sets us up with what we need to evaluate how we can lean into this, how we can open up even more of our lives to the needs of our friends around us. Because no, we're not yet what we want to be. There's a lot about our culture, not just our church culture, but I mean the, church, the culture out there around us, the air that we're all breathing. There's a lot about it 
that stands against this way of shared life from, from the kinds of things we normally do with our time to the normal work schedules that people are normally working to the way our homes work and neighborhoods work and where we're living. And there's all sorts of things that stand in the way of it. I think our opportunity is, is to press in even further to figure out where can we push back Remember that it's God's gospel backed by God's spirit that sets us free for this kind of community. We don't have to toss up our hands and we don't have to live in, and wallow in the despair over the shortcomings and we don't have to judge other people for their shortcomings. We can just say, look, God is building this. He said he would. I'm about that. So, so where, can, where can my life be more of my friends? Let me, let, me, let me encourage you to ask a couple of questions. I want you to write these down if you're taking notes, and then you can take these to your friends and ask them together. Where are our, we're asking in general, where are our opportunities to open more of our lives, to put more of ourselves at the disposal of our congregation? To, to, to answer that question, here's a couple of questions to think about. One, what might be holding me back from this kind of freedom? I want to encourage you to, to be as specific as you can be in thinking about your own heart and your own life and what might be holding you back from what we see here. Whatever it is, you can probably trace it back to some sort of insecurity. There's something that you, need, that you feel the need to protect or to provide for yourself. Something you feel responsible to protect or to provide for yourself. Maybe it's protecting your options in case something better comes along. Maybe it's protecting your future because you never know what money you'll need next year. Maybe it's protecting your family, making sure you make the most of what you have or give your kids a better future than the one you had. Maybe you feel the need to protect your privacy and this kind of life-on-life openness here feels too greatly exposed for you to live with. I think you should do, sit with this question and ask your friends to help you. What you need to know as you're, as you're looking for what's holding you back from freedom is that these people, Acts chapter 2, these first Christians, they're free because they don't believe it's on them to protect or provide for their lives. They've heard the apostles' teaching. They know who they are to God and who God is to them. Where do you struggle to believe? Where is your heart set on something that's vulnerable? rather than the, the rock-solid certainty of God's promises to you? That's the first question I'd encourage you to ask as you, as you think through. Where, where, where can I make my life more open to the friends in my church? Here's another question before we move on. What are some areas I may have protected that now, this week, right away, I can let go of. I can open up. This is where you get real specific with it. The, the first question is about like, what's holding you back. The second question is about finding a step you can take forward. Without the hope of the gospel, you may feel the need to hunker down. Without the hope of the gospel, you may feel like you're such a failure at this that you don't know where to begin and you can't stand up under that weight. But with the hope of the gospel... Well, then you're free to look carefully for specific ways you can bind yourself to the lives of other people. You know, our church offers benevolence funds to members in need. 
Did you know you can contribute directly to that if you wanted to? You can earmark a gift that would go to serving the needs of members who, who, uh, who for one reason or another are in a difficult spot. Maybe another thing you could think about, maybe do a meals audit. Think about the meals that you eat in your week. Where do you eat them and with whom? Maybe a, a concrete way you can apply this text to your life this week would be to figure out if there are a couple of meals that you haven't been using for time with others that you could begin to use for that purpose. Do you have flexibility to eat at lunch? Where you eat or how long you take? Maybe a day or two a week you try to find a church member, a friend that you can eat with. What about your home? Is there some way you could bring others into your home, either to prepare food for them or to invite them to bring food to you? I mean, either, anyway, it's fine. You just want to make sure that people are in your home, that you're sharing meals with them at night. Could you, could you commit to a couple times a week? You're going to target trying to have a meal with, with friends from church. Do a meals audit and see where your opportunities might be. Basically, what you're looking for, friends, is what do I have to offer? What, what resources has God put into my life? And then who needs those resources that he's given to me? Do you have an extra spot or two at your table? Well, there are people who are new to our church who don't know very many people who need some connection. There are people who are lonely in our church and need a place to belong. Do you have time at your disposal? Whose children can you invest in with that time? Whose pain can you listen to if you just take a walk around Radnor Lake and let them talk? Do you have money? We'll look for someone who needs support or maybe just encouragement. Whatever God has given you now, he hasn't given you forever. It won't last anyway. Whatever he's given you now isn't the extent of his generosity. He's not done giving to you. So whatever you have, you're free to share, to put at the disposal of your church. Where can you do that? Now, I want to make one more point to you guys with the few minutes I have left. We talked, about, we talked about what kind of community we will be if the Spirit shows up amongst us with His gospel and drives it into our heart. We'll be a community that's dependent on God, and we'll be a community that belongs to one another. And those are the two things that are the biggest emphases in this passage. That's why I've spent almost all my time there. But I do want to end by pointing to one more sign, one more mark that the Spirit will bring out in our life together, one more sign that He's at work in us. And it's this. We'll, we'll attract those around us. We'll actually attract those around us. Look at verse 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. To me, this is one of the most surprising points in the passage. I mean... You might think, based on the way they were living together, this is a people who has completely checked out of the world. This is like one of those cults that you, you see profiled on Dateline or something, you know, where they're just living this bunker lifestyle, an alternative world protected and isolated from all outsiders who may bring impurity to the group. And there's no question that they're focused on one another. I mean, they have built their lives around the church. Their priority is each other and how they love but not in some sort of remote, off-the-grid compound. They're living their life together. They're, they're, they're planting this outpost of the kingdom to come, the one where their hearts truly belong, right smack in the middle of the city, in full view of anyone who cares to pay attention. 
And verse 47 says they were paying attention. They had favor with the people who were watching them. They were drawn in. And God used this life together to add people to them every day. People are coming to faith, not just because of what they hear, but because of what they see. These lives of love that they're living speak the truth about the gospel. They point to the power of God's spirit to restore what's been ruined by sin, what's, what's normal for human relationships. So what I want you to notice, friends, and to pray with me towards for our own congregation, is that this consuming focus on love for one another within the church, the one this passage calls us to, is not a distraction from the mission Jesus gave to his church. It's how the church fulfills his mission. The quality of our life together as a local church, that's God's primary evangelism strategy for getting the gospel out to the world. Of course it's possible to be insular. Of course we could be cliquish. That's a real thing and Christians aren't immune to it. We have to always be careful and always evaluate how accessible and invested we are in friends who aren't followers of Jesus. But friend, have you considered that that it could be the key to you being more effective in evangelism is not spending less time with Christians so you can spend more time with those who aren't Christians. It could actually be, the key could actually be spending more time with Christians, devoting more of yourself to your relationships in the church, but doing that in full view of and with an open invitation to friends who don't believe so that they can see it too. See, if you're spending all of your time with, with unbelieving friends, in their world, in their context, you may be, your distinctiveness as a Christian may only show up in what you say no to. You're constantly saying, no, I, I can't affirm that. Uh, no, I can't go with you to that event that night. No, I can't join in on that conversation or laugh at that joke. No, no, no. And that's important. They need to see that there are different values that God's kingdom has brought into our life. But, but if we bring our friends who haven't experienced Christianity, into a context that's more shaped by the values of Christianity, then they get to see what we say yes to. And that's a different way to experience who we are. Let me push this one layer further. One of the things I often hear today in commentary out there about the place of Christianity in a Western secular society is that we got to be prepared for more and more and more opposition. And that's, that's true. There is a lot of opposition outside the church to the values of the church, especially when it comes to human identity on things like gender and sexuality, on on our inability to, unwillingness to say that an individual person has the right to define for themselves what is good and true and right and beautiful. We do believe God as our creator has that right and he alone has it. And for that, we will experience more hostility likely in years to come. But just just because there are challenges to us being where they are doesn't mean that there aren't also unique opportunities for us being where we are. See, because that philosophy about human identity and fulfillment, it leaves some carnage in its wake. One of the things that social commentators are also talking a lot about these days is what's been called the loneliness epidemic, leading to deaths of despair at alarming rates and to an overall decline in life expectancy in America for the last three years running. It's a consequence, I believe, at least in part, of this push for more and more individual autonomy 
people are living alone and aging alone and dying alone. They're spending more and more time in front of screens that are now individually sized, sized for one, portals into other worlds that pull us out of this one. And the more attention we pay to our own self-discovery, the more we invest in that process through books or therapy or whatever other aid, the more deeply we feel misunderstood by other people who can't possibly understand what we've learned about ourselves. And we get isolated even from friends whose minds are on their own journey. Whatever the cultural factors, this epidemic of loneliness is real. And insofar as that's going on out around us, what a backdrop for the evangelistic power of this sort of community that we see playing out right here, this sort of life together, this is an alternative world that's beautiful. And insofar as we live it out, open to all, inviting to anyone who would come, how much more compelling this invitation to come and learn of Jesus, this offer to pledge allegiance to him and live in the new world he's promised to build. Friends, I think we'll have an opportunity and it will depend on God's power and God's spirit. So that's what we're gonna gonna do now is just follow their model and pray based on what they've taught us that God's spirit will do this work among us. I wanna do that now and invite you to continue to do that this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've spoken and given us such clear and wonderful models of what your power can accomplish among people who are sinful and selfish just like us but who have known the freedom that the gospel brings. We pray that our church would continue to look more and more like this church. We pray that you would help us to be more and more aware of things we're doing that may be leaning away rather than into this model. And we pray that you give us hope that will overcome the disappointment we feel about where we fall short and that will help us to trust you with our future and to take the steps we can take this week. We trust you with this, Father, because we know it's too much of a lift for us and because you've told us that you want to work in us. We're trusting you with that together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.